It's my privilege, I guess, to introduce this series as we look today at 1 Samuel 1 through 2.11. Let's hear God's word as we meditate on his scriptures. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow, but Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. 
My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up from the poor, from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Let's pray together. And now, O God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What is God up to? It's a question sometimes we ask as Christians as we look at the world around us. As Christians, we know that God is at work somewhere. We know that God is involved. We know he's doing something. But what is it? What's God doing? Uh, we ask it in part because we don't always see the evidence of what he's doing. The Bible gives us a, a grand picture that God is at work, that he's advancing his plan. If you think about the New Testament, we get grand statements about the church. What is the church? Well, the church is the new creation. It's the kingdom of God advancing. It's the reign of God on earth. These are big grand statements about who we are as the church, aren't we? Isn't it? Isn't it grand? And then we look around and we think, we're on the second floor of a school renting space next to a UFIT gym. That's the new creation? That's the kingdom of God advancing? That's what he's up to? Doesn't seem maybe as grand as we thought. I sometimes think of this as well as we look at politics around us. It's pretty easy to get discouraged when you think about kind of the bleak picture, maybe the candidates that we have to choose from. And it's understandable why people, when they look at this thing, they just say, I'm checked out. There's really nothing I can do to make a difference. Nothing is changing. Nothing is moving forward. I'm out. Well, the beginning of the book of Samuel, and by the way, it's really just one book that they couldn't fit on one scroll, so you had to chop it off and put it in two scrolls, but it's one big book that we're going to be looking at this narrative. It kind of begins with this very tension. The big plan of God that he's promised to Israel and the very dark time in which it looks like he's not really at work. So what we'll see is as we go through Samuel, Samuel's kind of a book of grand politics, great battles, great heroes. If you think of Samuel, some of your favorite stories are there, David and Goliath, kings, there's intrigue, sort of a political drama as well. But the very beginning of this grand narrative doesn't start off with the political intrigue. It starts off with a barren woman and a little family in a backwater country of Israel who's crying out many tears. 
You know, you, you start this book and you think, what does this have to do with the kingdom of God? What does this have to do with God's big grand picture to bring about salvation for many? What is God up to here in Samuel? In the book of Samuel, if you're reading it in the Old Testament, it starts very dark because of what comes before. It follows on the heels of Judges and Ruth. And if you know the story, God's called his people out of Egypt. He's brought them through the Red Sea. It's great. They brought them through the wilderness. He's given them the promised land. The book of Joshua has a lot of those great battles as well. They've conquered by faith. There's been miraculous things that the Lord has done. But when you get to the book of Judges, and the people of Israel are in the land, things start to turn downward. It's kind of a depressing book. It's actually a very depressing book when you read Judges. The people of God start to make compromises with the pagan nations around them. They start to worship other gods. The leaders of God's people, especially the priests, the Levites, become incredibly corrupt. And Judges actually ends on kind of one of the most depressing notes of any book of the Bible. It ends with these words, In those days there was no king of Israel, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Very depressing. Ruth gives us a little glimmer of hope as we get a nice love story, a heartwarming story of a Moabite who's converted to the true faith of the Lord. She finds a place with God's people. But in general, as we get to the beginning of this book of Samuel, things are kind of bleak. Things don't look very great. We'll see this more as we go on in the book. But we begin with this question, what is God up to in his plan. How is God going to get Israel out of this mess and this dark time? Well, it begins with this one little family, a man named Elkanah, and immediately we're told he has two wives. Uh Uh-oh, he has two wives. If one wasn't enough, he's got two, Hannah and Penina. The text here gives us a genealogy of his family, but it's not anything particularly special about Elkanah. He doesn't seem to be a great family of high standing. It's interesting, too, Hannah's name means favored one. She's a favored one. It's the Hebrew word for grace. And certainly she is favored by her husband, but her, contradict, her condition seems to contradict her condition. She's, her name doesn't seem to fit when she is the one who is not seemingly very blessed. How can the favored one be barren? How can the specially loved one, the one who's full of grace, have so much shame. Look at verse 5. The Lord had closed her womb. In fact, it's repeated. It's not in any kind of ambiguous sense. The Lord had closed her womb. And in her barrenness, Hannah takes a special place, in a sense, in the Bible with the women of Scripture, the wives of the patriarchs of Genesis. Think about Sarah, who was barren. Rebecca, who was barren, Rachel, who was barren. There are barren women in the book of Judges. The story of Ruth, though not necessarily barrenness, is a story about the problem of passing down a family line. And Hannah's barrenness is made worse by the fact that she has a rival. This happens as well in Scripture. She's got another wife. She has to share her husband and a rival who has no problem at all apparently having children. <laughs> the text emphasizes this a number of ways. Uh, Penina goes up to the sanctuary with her husband, and it's kind of like all caps in Hebrew, and all of her sons and all of her daughters. You've got to imagine the picture that uh, Penina is rolling up in the minivan, and she's pulling out the quadruple stroller, and Hannah's standing there thinking, all of these kids pouring out of the van 
And Penina, of course, taunts Hannah about this. Look at verse 6. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. In fact, again, this is repeated. Verse 7, this went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. So it's almost worse at the very occasion for sort of celebration and worship, your yearly vacation trip. And then Penina lays it on thick to, Sh- uh, to Hannah. And you can kind of imagine it again as they're getting ready for Shiloh. You know, Penina says, I had so much packing to do. I had to pack for all my kids. How did it go? Oh, you don't have any kids. Probably wasn't a big deal for you, Hannah. She says things like this, taunting her. The text doesn't say it, but it's likely that Hannah was Elkanah's first wife, uh, his first love, but then when she couldn't produce any children, he probably gained a second wife to produce an heir. Children in the ancient world uh, are not just a blessing as they are to us, but they're kind of a necessity, not only of social standing, but of passing down the family line, as well as your retirement plan is your kids. So Elkanah says, I gotta take a second wife, Hannah. We can uh, just imagine the thoughts that Hannah had. Does the Lord really love me? I was named full of grace. I was named favorite one. Where is his blessing now? We can see Elkanah as a typical husband, at least I can sort of see myself in this, trying to cheer up his wife. Why are you crying, Hannah? Why don't you eat? Why are you so sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? You know, like many husbands, he's trying to help. (laughs) Our husbands, we do our best to try to cheer up our wives, but no, it's probably just making this worse. Hannah, can't you just be happy? Can I make you happy, Hannah? Do I not do enough for you? And Elkanah gives her more of the sacrificial meal. It's like the Lord's Supper, really, of the time, the sacrifice that you would offer, that you would share of. He's trying to show his love, but of course, it's not a substitute. And all this, year by year, on and on, Hannah's long grief. That's the problem we're set up with. We'll step back for a moment and think about what this story is doing in the context of the big story. We can figure out pretty quickly that this is a picture for us. It's kind of a symbolic picture of the condition of Israel. See, barrenness in the Bible isn't just a personal problem, although it is. It's very difficult. It's a kind of symbol as a danger to God's promises. And the reason is because we go all the way back to the fall into sin. God makes a special promise, the first promise really of Scripture out of the fall. God says the promised seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. In other words, things are bad right now. The serpent led you into sin, but Eve, you're going to have children. You're going to have a child who one day is going to crush the head of this serpent. Salvation's going to come through a birth, through offspring. And then Abraham, you might remember, is promised seed. Abraham, I'm going to give you lots of children. They're going to fill the earth. They're going to be a blessing to all. But Sarah is barren. So the promise is under threat. How is the serpent going to have his head crushed? How is God's blessing going to go out? That's why barrenness is such a constant theme. For example, in the book of Genesis, without a family line, there's no future for God's people. Again, uh, you can imagine, or barrenness in the Old Testament is also a sign of unfaithfulness, not necessarily of the barren one themselves. That's actually part of the tension. Uh, But it is a, a kind of sign of the unfaithfulness of God's people. If you look in Deuteronomy 28, it gives you the blessings of the covenant that God says that you, Israel, if you, if you follow me, if you obey all of these commands, it says, I'm going to bless the fruit of your womb. 
but disobedience is going to close the womb. So again, you can imagine Hannah's angst. Am I being unfaithful? Is it my own unfaithfulness? But no, Hannah is faithful, but she is in a sense bearing Israel's sin. She's symbolizing the fact that as a whole, God's people are not being faithful. They're dead in their sin. They're fruitless, not fruitful. They're fruitless as a nation. One early way we can see this is that the fact that Elkanah has taken a second wife, uh, however pious Elkanah may be, and he does seem rather pious, he hasn't been very, very patient either. Kind of think back to the Abraham story with Sarah being barren. and what, what do they do to sort of circumvent God's promise? Well, he hasn't waited on the Lord. Elkanah is like a picture of Israel who's supposed to be married to God and find their uh, their love and be fruitful in the Lord. But what has happened with Israel, it says they're going after other husbands, going after other gods, other lords. Uh, they're trying to live in this kind of polygamous marriage. Yes, of course, Lord, we love you, but uh, Baal's just nice to keep on our side. You know, that's kind of what's going. That's what Elkanah is doing with Hannah. I love you, Hannah, but I just had to take this second wife. You understand, right? This little household of Elkanah is a kind of microcosm of God's people. They're divided between the worldly of Israel who have compromised, who are often well off because of this. But then there's a faithful remnant who are keeping faith to the Lord, but they're suffering because of it. They're in sorrow. They're in angst. This is the problem the story begins with. Let's then look at the plea. Look at verses 9 through 18. It's kind of the next session. Hannah knows that her husband can't really fix this. That's good. He, she knows that he can't make her happy. So she goes to the Lord. She goes in prayer. But all of this is in context of worship. It's interesting that it's emphasizing she does this particularly when she's at the sanctuary, at the house of the Lord for worship. She pours out her soul before the Lord. The words here are actually very reminiscent of an earlier study we did here at Florida Coast on Exodus. These words are straight from the very beginning of Exodus. It was there that Israel had cried out to the Lord, that they had brought their distress before the Lord. They had called on the Lord to look on their affliction, to remember them. See, Hannah, in her prayer, really knows her Bible. She's kind of just quoting back the Bible to the Lord. She sees herself as kind of in an Egyptian slavery like earlier. She needs an exodus, a deliverance. It's very possible that already here she sees her own personal story as somehow connecting to the larger story. That by her own barrenness and maybe by the Lord's deliverance of that, that he might bring a greater deliverance for people who need the Lord's intervention. When you look at her prayer in verse 11, you see that she makes a vow to the Lord, an oath. Her prayer takes the form of a covenant. See, God's a covenant keeper, and God's made a pledge. So she makes a pledge to God. All of her trust in God is in God. She knows that she's powerless to do anything about this situation. It's interesting. Uh, again, it says the Lord closed her womb. And in a sense, she believes that. So the Lord only is the one who can open her womb. But here's where we have this kind of funny misunderstanding. Hannah is pouring out her heart, her soul. She's moving her lips, but she's not speaking aloud. And Eli, who is the great priest of Israel, the spiritual leader of Israel, thinks she's drunk. And look at these words. They're certain, How long, woman, will you go on being drunk? Put away the wine from you. On the other hand, although this does kind of seem funny, 
This doesn't actually bode very well, does it? It's kind of unsettling that the great spiritual leader who's there in the house of the Lord, which is called a house of prayer, he doesn't even recognize when someone is praying. You might ask the question as we get here to 1 Samuel, doesn't anybody pray at the Lord's house? Has Eli ever seen somebody pray? He's incapable of distinguishing prayer from drunkenness. It doesn't seem like he's a great leader of Israel's spiritual life. He's, in a sense, we'll see this, picturing the fact that the priests themselves have led the people away. But Hannah corrects Eli. He acknowledges his mistake. That's good. He gives her a blessing. And Hannah's prayer has not only called out to God, then it's a kind of been an example to the leadership. Hannah is being an example to the priests of Israel. We can see this in a foretaste of how the Lord's going to bring deliverance for his people. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have to be a crying out to God, and it's going to be a rebuking of corrupted leadership. Hannah is here showing us the way. Well, verses 19 through 20 is the answer to Hannah's prayer. It's all about the Lord's faithfulness to the covenant. He remembered her. What a great phrase, isn't it? He remembered her. Just as he had remembered his people in Israel, that he had looked upon their affliction, then he remembered his promise to their forefathers. He does so again. And it's all framed by worship. Look at verse 19. It's all from the house of the Lord, that the Lord hears the prayers of his people. It's from the Lord's sanctuary that he acts. And Hannah's naming of Israel reflects this kind of trust in the Lord. In one sense, this story would be a really nice, happy ending right there. Hannah's problem, and then an answer. She gets a kid. Woo, we're done. That's great. Hannah wanted children, she got one, and they lived happily, happily ever after would be a great ending to this chapter. But here's again where we see the faithfulness of Hannah. The fact that Hannah's story is really a, a part of this larger story about a people who need renewal and salvation. Hannah had promised in a vow that she would dedicate her son to the Lord. In fact, this, this vow is a, Tao that, a vow that she would make her son a Nazarite. You might remember this term in the Bible, a Nazarite vow. Uh, it was there in verse 11. I kind of skipped it over in the previous section. No razor shall touch his head. The Nazarite vow is in number six, if you want to go back and look at it sometime. It's a kind of very special vow that uh, people in Israel could make as a service to God. Um, it's shown most visibly as a kind of from the outside by two things, not drinking any wine, no fruit of the vine would touch their lips, neither would any razor touch their head. So no cutting of the hair. You got long hair, no wine. And the vow could be entered into voluntarily, and you could also end the vow. It doesn't seem like it's normally a lifelong vow. You might say, I'm going to do this. And in the Old Testament, it's particularly associated with kind of holy war. Uh, when Israel was in a conquest in the land, it seems like people made this particular vow. So they would uh, have a priest-like status, do the Lord's will in a special way, and then end their vow. But apparently, one could become a permanent Nazarite. And in fact, there are three permanent Nazarites in the Bible, and they're all very prominent. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. And interestingly, what do you note about all three of them? They're each born to barren women. Samuel is like the ministry of John the Baptist. He's preparing the way of the Lord. He's preparing the, the path. He's 
preparing for a coming king. He himself is, in a sense, not the deliverer, but he's preparing the way. He's like Samson, and it's going to involve the nations around, the Philistines, pushing back the pagan nations from around Israel. Uh, The promise of John the Baptist's ministry, you might remember, is that he would turn the hearts of children to their fathers and fathers to their children. There's somehow an intergenerational conflict, and this is what Samuel is going to do. It's going to bring unity to the heart of God's family. So for Hannah to complete her vow, what does she have to do? She has waited for this son for so long. She has got the son, and now she has to give him up. She doesn't go back on her word. She only spends a few years with the son that she cried over for so long. Uh, Weaning in the ancient world was about three years old. She's about three years with the son that she waited, and she brings him to the Lord's house. It's interesting that she brings a three-year-old bull. It's almost like this sense of a substitute. She knows that she's giving up the Lord, this, giving to the Lord this son that she has had. She offers to the Lord a three-year-old bull, grain and wine, and she brings her own three-year-old as a kind of offering of her own. This is her sacrifice. This is her dedication. Listen to her words. First, she tells her husband in verse 22 that Samuel will, quote, appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. I'm giving this son up, and he's going to be before the Lord always. Almost like he's going to live forever, straight up in God's presence. Strong words. It's almost as if Samuel was a kind of everlasting priest, or maybe a type, a symbol, a foreshadowing of someone who would serve the Lord forever in his presence. And she looks then as well, uh, she she uh, turns and says also to Eli, For this child I have prayed, and the Lord granted me my petition. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Now, don't worry too much about this word lent, as if she's kind of renting out her son uh, to the Lord. Uh, Hannah's doing what she's doing here is making a playoff of words in Hebrew, uh, making a playoff of Samuel's name, And Lent is very similar in sound to the word for Samuel. So she's saying, this is what I named him, so I'm going to give him up. This is who he is. He's given to the Lord. I knew from the beginning, in a sense, that I would give and dedicate this son to the Lord. We see here in Hannah's sacrifice the beginning of Israel's renewal. See, the previous generation hadn't passed on the Lord's covenant. There's words at the very beginning of Judges that are very ominous words. It says that the generation of Joshua served the Lord all their days, and then there arose a new generation that did not know the Lord and did not know his works. Uh Uh-oh. And the rest of Judges follows that track. So what's Hannah doing here? She's putting things back on track. She wanted a son, but not for herself, but she might offer him up to the Lord. She's giving him up quite literally taking him out of her own grasp and into the Lord's service. It's interesting that the story starts with Hannah not having a son, and the chapter ends with Hannah not having a son, but in a sense, God having a son. Samuel becomes the adoptive son of who? Well, directly of God himself, a kind of adopted child by sacrifice, by dedication. His earthly father is kind of given away. We don't hear anything more about Elkanah, but he becomes, in a sense, a son to God himself. 
and all by sacrifice. Hannah points the way for Israel and how Israel is going to be renewed, to give up of their own desires, to dedicate themselves to a greater father. Well, this next section then is Hannah's prayer of praise. It's a poem or song to the Lord. Again, we see that this is a feisty little woman, and she is steeped in Scripture. She has internalized God's Word, and she can express it beautifully here. How many of us could write a song like this that has so many words of Scripture all together, and she sings it in praise of God? She makes her story about God's story, God's salvation, her, his work in her life. Uh, Hannah's prayer is very neat, and it's kind of uh, how it flows it begins uh, with a description of her own salvation. This is what the Lord has done for me. This is how I feel about it. But then it goes to another section. The whole middle part is this. This is how God acts. This is just who he is. This is me, but I'm going to get off me and say this is who God is. And then finally, she actually ends with something more that God is going to do. Look at the first words. They're all personal words. My heart is joyful or exalts. My strength. My horn, literally, she says, kind of comparing herself to a mighty beast, is exalted. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. God has vindicated Hannah, especially before her arrival. So she does some celebrating. We might call this holy trash talk. Uh, this is directed at Panina. She says, my mouth derides my enemies. God has vindicated me. But it's not ultimately about her. God is the one who has vindicated her. She moves on to who God is in this and how this says something about, you know, this is just how God works. She's not kind of a one-off event in this. Uh, this is just who God is. He's a rock. He's the kind of God who weighs actions of a person. By the way, can you even hear Hannah in this as well? People probably said, Hannah's kind of unfaithful. That's why she's barren. She says, God weighed my actions. He knew that I... Not perfect, but I was faithful, and he vindicated me in this, even when it appeared like she was cursed by God. See, God's a God of reversals. He upends our normal worldly standards. The mighty are the ones who are broken. Do you see how these are just reversals? The weak are the ones who are strong. The hungry get satisfied, and those who are full go on hungering more. They're not satisfied. The barren get children. But the one who has children is still sad. You can hear Penina again in the background. God's in charge of all of this. He kills and he gives life. He brings people down to the grave. But he's a God of resurrection. He's provided a resurrection, in a sense, in Hannah's womb. Her womb was kind of a dead place. Life couldn't go on there, but he is a God of resurrection. God's the God of the ash heap. You look at this prayer and you think, where's God? What's he up to in this? Well, he's on the garbage dump. He's with people who mourn and who are neglected because he's the one who exalts people that way. That's just the kind of God he is. That's what he's up to. See, he's starting salvation from the ground up. He's not starting from the top and going down. He's starting from the humble. He's starting with the small things, a woman in a backwater country in Israel. And then verses 9 through 10 suddenly switch to the future tense. This is great. So not only has Hannah experienced salvation, that's just the kind of God he is. You know, God's going to do even more. Hannah moves from what God did for her to what God always does and what's yet to come. See, God's going to guard the faithful, but he's going to cut off the wicked. 
The enemies of God's people are going to be broken to pieces because God's going to thunder from heaven once more. He's going to judge the whole earth. Notice how we've started from this little woman, backwater country, to God's going to judge the whole earth. He's going to bring salvation. He's starting small, but it's going to end up big. And most of all, for the rest of the story in Samuel, God's going to raise up a king. Whoa, suddenly, where did we get that word out of here? God's going to raise up a king and give strength to him. Hannah knows God's promises. She's looking forward to God's promises. He's going to exalt the horn of his anointed one. You know what the word is that in Hebrew? Messiah. Messiah. Hannah started with how God exalted her horn. She's this little woman, but she's kind of like a mighty beast, and he exalted her. But she ends with God exalting the horn of a chosen one, of a king who's going to come, who's anointed. See, Hannah knows her story is not just kind of a one-off story. It's not just God having pity for a childless woman. It is. It's the start of a revolution in Israel. It's a renewal for God's people, and it's going to end with a king coming and worldwide redemption. But it all started with the tears of this woman, crying out day after day, year after year. And the section ends then with a little boy, we're told, a kind of adopted priest, but adopted straight into the priesthood, who's training up to be the leader of God's people, ministering always in the presence of the Lord. See, Beloved, Hannah saw her story in light of God's big story. And that's how we should do it as well. Sometimes we don't know what God's doing in our story, but we need to connect it to the big story. What's God doing in the rest of the world? What did he say that he would do in the world? In this story, Samuel is the one who comes and he's going to bring renewal in this story. Where there's corruption, Samuel's going to be faithful. But you know, in this story, I hate to break it for Larry, who's going to preach the rest of these sermons, Samuel couldn't really lead the change, the lasting change either. He does a lot of good, but he couldn't bring ultimate salvation. We don't get the part in Hannah's song about God bringing salvation in a sense to all. Samuel prepared the way. He prepared the way for a king. And in the Old Testament book that this is, that's ultimately David. And David's the star of Samuel. But I'm going to break, the, I'm going to break it again about where we're going. David falls to David can't save God's people. Great as David is, great David needs a greater son, a son who is truly the anointed one. And beloved, Jesus was born not just from a barren woman, but from a virgin woman. It's kind of like one step more than barren. It's even more miraculous. Dedicated to God from the very beginning, what did he do? He ministered before the Lord, always in his presence, because he is God's presence. And that's where he is now. The Lord is ministering in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle of heaven. He's there before you, just like it was said of Samuel, that he would minister before the Lord all his days, forever. He ultimately was what God is up to. And it's what God is still up to today. He's the one doing it. He hears your cries. He sees your tears. If you're like that today, if you've come, you've got some tears that no one else has seen, the Lord hears them. Jesus has experienced it. And he's the one who can bring salvation in this time too. So let me leave you just with these things. Beloved, be faithful then in spite of compromise all around us. There is compromise all around us. Sometimes we can even look at 
the church, and I don't mean just this church, but the church in general, the church in the West, the church around the world, and you think, there's so much compromise. Christians aren't living the way that we should. We don't have the kind of passion we should for these things, but you be faithful. Because God can use your faithfulness, even in small things, to do great things. And beloved, call on him to save. Call on him to save in your life and for the life of God's people around the world. He can bring renewal. He will bring renewal. And then lastly, dedicate ourselves to him. Dedicate yourselves to him, especially your children too, but yourselves, whatever you have, bring it to the Lord. Dedicate it to him. Offer up sacrifices, especially in the Lord's house. It's interesting. Again, the whole scenes about when this happened is when they would go up to worship, the Lord hears and she offers up her prayer. Let's offer up that prayer now in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that you look on our affliction, that you hear our cries, that you see our distress, and that you remember your covenant. So, Father, we ask that you would cause us to be faithful even when it's difficult, even when there's taunting and there's teasing and there's questions. Are we really faithful? That you would cause us to be faithful in spite of what's going on around us, that you would move and act, that you would save where we need salvation. Look upon your church in the world and bring renewal. Strengthen us, we pray. Father, we ask here at, at Florida Coast that you would cause us to dedicate ourselves to you, whatever we have, that we would lend it to you because it doesn't really belong to us, and that you would cause whatever we give to be used in your service so that your plan might go forward, that your son might be glorified, for we pray in his name. Amen.